Our culture and our lives are run by media. We spend more time looking at media, engaging in media, talking about media than ever before. But it's essential to understand that someone's got to pay for all that media. And there are basically three choices. One, we can pay for it. The user can buy a book or a movie ticket. Two, we can pay for it when we buy something inside the medium, like eBay. Or three, most of all, most of the time, an advertiser can pay for the media. And we do ourselves a disservice if we pretend that what advertisers want doesn't matter. Hey, it's Ajay, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. I've been playing with media my entire career and selling ads for most of it. Selling ads is really seductive because it separates the people you are dancing for, the people you are seeking to change, the people you are trying to impact from the people who are paying for it. What that means is if you can find a happy advertiser, a sponsor, somebody who's willing to show up and pay the bills, you can then turn around and create the work that you'd like to create for the people you want to create it for. Unfortunately, this siren song of advertising usually leads to people with good intentions either not finding an advertiser because they don't understand what advertisers want, or perhaps even worse, finding an advertiser who wants something they don't want and creating a product or a service that they're not proud of. So yeah, sometimes it can work great when you find a generous, patient sponsor who lets you make the work you want to make, you've created yet another building block of our culture. But often, it leads to things like the Facebook scandal. This is a short podcast about how that came to be and why it matters. There are two kinds of advertising, brand marketing and direct marketing. And until very recently, almost all advertising was brand marketing. Brand marketing... The John Wanamaker rule is, I know that half my ads don't work, I just don't know which half. Brand marketing is the idea that you could run a commercial on Seinfeld, or that you could put up a billboard, or list 500 other ways that you could find a socially acceptable way to interrupt people with your ad, and maybe, just maybe, over time, one day, someone would buy something from you creating enough revenue that you could buy more ads. This bulk of advertising, brand advertising, created the TV industrial complex. It created the entire mindset that what we ought to do as creators is put on a show and then sell ads in the show. It's essential to remember that radio exists because they needed a place to put radio ads, that television exists because they needed a place to put television ads. The ads came first. And then the internet came along. Now the thing about the internet is that it's the first mass medium that wasn't invented for advertisers. In fact, advertising was forbidden. It's not for advertisers. The second thing to understand is that the internet isn't actually a mass medium. Sometimes it pretends to be. There are tiny pockets that are seen by large numbers of people. 
but it's not really a mass medium. It's a micro medium, a personal medium, a one-on-one medium. So back in the very early 90s, before the World Wide Web, I invented an idea called permission marketing. The idea that anticipated personal and relevant ads delivered by email to people who wanted to get them would do better than spam, would do better than yelling at people, would do better than interrupting people who didn't want to hear from you. This leads to the second idea, the idea of direct marketing, which is not like brand marketing. Direct marketing is action marketing, the marketing of measurement. You put an ad in front of somebody, you know you put it in front of them, and you can measure whether they got back to you or not. This is the advertising of Ron Popeil and the Basomatic and the late-night infomercial. Super Basomatic 76 works great on sunfish, perch sole, and other small aquatic creatures. Wow, that's terrific bass! It's advertising that's designed to pay for itself every time you run the ad. It's measured, it's tracked, and it's targeted. And until recently, as I said, almost no major marketers bought direct marketing. It wasn't in their culture, it wasn't the way they thought about things, and it wasn't effective. Really hard to sell shampoo or picture frames or life insurance even by direct marketing. It's a whole different way of being in the world. For the purposes of people who are fascinated by bending the culture, the distinction between direct marketing and brand marketing is essential. If direct marketers had their way, interesting content would disappear. That the entire mindset of the direct marketer is merely who is going to click, who is going to buy. Brand marketers, on the other hand, care about things like Vogue magazine. They care about things like The Atlantic and The New Yorker. They want to be surrounded by an editorial environment that changes the way people perceive the brand. It's worth noting here that in direct marketing, a 1% response rate, if 1% of the people see the ad buy, is a home run, a home run that's worthy of being in the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame. It almost never happens, 1%. So if you're a direct marketer, you don't care about the other 99%. If you're a direct marketer, the only goal is the click. That creates a totally different kind of media experience than the one we think of when we think of media that matters to us. So let's roll back the camera 25 years It's 1993, 94, 95, 96, and I'm on the road trying to sell ads at Yellowdyne. And the idea behind the ads was simple. I could show that more people open an email from my company than anybody else in the entire advertising world. I could show that we were outperforming all other forms of direct marketing. And almost nobody wanted to buy what we were selling. Sure, we had great sponsors like American Express and Procter & Gamble, but it was hard. It was hard work. And about the same time, Yahoo was gaining traction. And Yahoo was selling millions and millions of dollars worth of ads, way more ads than I was. In 1998, we had built Yoyodyne to the point where it was profitable. The folks at Yahoo made us a great offer. We wanted to take our technology and our work even further, so we accepted and we joined the Yahoo team. And I vividly remember 
right after we joined, going on a sales call with one of Yahoo's salespeople. And he didn't use any of the skills, the empathy, the technique that my Salesforce and I had ever used. He just stood in the front of the room, he read a script, and then he said, and I'm empowered to take up to $4 million from you, but only for the next hour. And then we went into the hall. And I'm not making this up. Two minutes later, someone from the client ran out with a check and handed it to the Yahoo sales rep. I almost burst into tears. It was very memorable about how easy it was for them to sell an ad. So why was it so easy? And the answer was simple. They were selling the ad on the homepage of Yahoo, the mass market center of the internet, the one place where you could brag to your colleagues and to your boss that you had bought an ad. You owned the internet for that day. That ad was sold out for a year at a time. The other thing that was sold out at Yahoo over and over again were the keywords. So if you typed in, I want to buy a new car, the ad that you would see in those search results was sold out. The thing that was going on in the late 1990s was this. Brand marketers were being pushed to think like direct marketers because web ads have always been measured. Can't measure a TV ad, can't measure a radio ad, not the way you can measure a web ad. No one clicks on a billboard but you click on a banner ad. And it freaked marketers out that people could measure their clicks. Because if you got measured, it meant that you had to go to your boss and tell her whether or not the ad worked. And that's why most of the time that people bought ads from Yahoo, they never even collected the data. Because if they had the data, they'd have to tell people how they were doing. It wasn't direct marketing. It was brand marketing in a direct marketing outfit. Okay, so I promised I'd explain how we got to where we are. Here we go. About a month after Yahoo bought my company, they bought another company called Hyperparallel. Hyperparallel were seven rocket scientists. They were proud of the fact that they were actual rocket scientists who had figured out how to mine data. They were one of the first data mining companies. Yahoo had no idea what to do with these seven people. They just bought the company. I'm not sure why. They put me in a conference room with them, and they said, figure something out. Well, what I knew was that the keywords, the good keywords, were all sold out. They were sold out for months at a time. Not because they worked, though they might have worked, but because the advertisers who were used to buying brand ads were happy to buy them. Because you could say, yeah, anyone who searches on Yahoo for I want to buy a new car finds us. Well, we're looking at all this data and I say to them, well, why don't we just sell people the second click? So after someone types, I want to buy a new car, and then they don't click on the ad, they're going to look at the second page of the search results, or they're going to type in a new search. But we know something about those people. We know that five minutes ago, they were looking for a new car. So now they're on a different page, a page that maybe no one wants to buy the ad of. But we know who they are and what they want. And what they want, or at least what they wanted a minute ago, was to buy a new car. And so Yahoo went to advertisers and said, you want the second page? And that was easy to sell. And that was the beginning of data. Advertisers didn't want data because they want data. They wanted data because it was a way to buy an ad cheaper. That the main goal of someone who's advertising online is either to get a measured result If they get a measured result, they actually do not care 
where they ran the ad. All they care about is they got a measured result. They paid a dollar, they made $2. This is the untold secret of where Google makes all its money. Google started by selling ads for 10 cents a click, 15 cents a click. But then once you saw your competitor was buying ads for 15 cents a click, you would pay 20 cents a click, 30 cents a click, 40 cents a click, and auction goes on. And all of a sudden, you're paying up to a penny less than what that click is worth. Google's collecting almost all the profit because your alternative is to not buy it, in which case your competitor buys it. Either way you lose, Google wins. That's the heart of how Google has built a multi-billion dollar corporation, auctioning off the clicks of people who are interested. And then the data comes along. And what the data says is, well, if you're not really good at measuring, here's a way of buying a story where you can put your brand ad. You're in front of these people, not these people. These people, not these people. So the purpose of the data is to be able to say to the advertiser, you can reach people who will take action because we know something about their behavior. So to summarize some of the threads here, the first one is this. Advertisers would prefer to buy mass. They like the Super Bowl. They want it to be easy. They want to reach everyone. But everyone is expensive. And the web, where we spend more and more of our time, isn't a mass medium. It's a micro medium. And as a result, advertisers can't get what they want. What marketers online needed to do, online media companies with inventory to sell so they could build the web, so they could change the culture, needed to figure out how to get advertisers to pay them. They used data to create lots of little mass market opportunities, lots of little places advertisers could afford to buy mass. And so they did. Along the way, a different division of every one of these media companies raced as hard as it could to get your eyeballs so they could sell them to someone else. Number two, once the data starts showing up, competitors can get smart. They can figure out how to save money by using the data to start thinking like direct marketers. They don't want to think like direct marketers, but they have to. They have to because their competitors are. This leads to a little bit of a downward ratchet, because the flat belly diet and other ads that are paying by the click need to figure out how to pay more by the click, and so the ads get more outrageous and less brand-oriented. And the third big thing to understand is that you are the product. If you use Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn, It's important to understand that these free services exist to sell you to advertisers. And we should go in with our eyes open, knowing that that is precisely what's going on. A few years ago, I blogged about the fact that Twitter missed a huge opportunity. Before Twitter went public, they could have taken a deep breath and said, you know what, we're not going to create a mass medium paid for by advertisement and interruption, we're simply going to charge our best users, the publishers, the people who put stuff onto the site, who want to be seen and trusted, we'll charge them a monthly fee. 
if they had done that, they would have aligned the interests of the people who use the service with the people who pay for the service. Which leads to the last conclusion. Matthew Bartholomew has written a great book called Ad Creep, and in it, he talks about a hundred years of advertisers and especially media companies lobbying, litigating, and shifting our culture around the idea that advertisements are somehow a form of free speech and that advertisers should be able to say what they want, when they want, to who they want, because it's up to them. As we've turned advertisers into direct marketers, I think we need to be really aware of the cost of that to our culture, to the media that we interact with. The thing is, advertisers in an auction-filled environment will always go to the edge. And the edge is up to us. It's up to us to decide what we will tolerate. It's up to us to decide what we want from the media we engage in. If we put up guardrails, the advertisers will respond appropriately because they want guardrails. They don't want every single moment of our life to be a direct marketing interaction. It's not profitable for them. It's not fun for them. And they are consumers too. But if there are no guardrails, if there is no limit to what kind of surveillance we are under, to what happens to our clickstream, to what happens to our attention, and it's all up for auction, it's hard to see how public companies are going to hold back in that environment. It's going to be a race to the bottom. So our opportunity is to be really careful with our attention because we only get a certain amount of attention every day. And if we give it away to the wrong organizations and the wrong people, we can't have it back. Our opportunity is not to click on spam, not to interact with people we're not proud to interact with. But most of all, collective action. The collective action of saying, we the consumers, the ones who are being sold to, these are our standards. Let's enforce them. The purpose of this podcast, so far eight or nine episodes in, is to talk to you about bending the culture. Each of us has a platform to do that now. Each of us owns a media company a media company that may or may not be paid for by advertising, but a media company nonetheless, because each of us publishes our ideas to the world. The opportunity that we have in this moment in time is to decide how that's going to get done tomorrow and a year from now and a decade from now, because our culture defines who we are. It's what we've got and it's what we make it into. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hey Seth, it's Sam from Los Angeles. My question is, if we do work which embraces wabi-sabi, how do we know if we're on track? How do we know if the imperfections are part of something beautiful or if they're simply rough edges which need more polishing? Thank you. It's a great question. How do we determine the difference between something that is good, really good, rough for the right reasons, human, 
for the right reasons versus something that's simply sloppy, that has edges for no good reason. And I think the distinction comes because digital isn't that good at understanding the nuances of what we need and what we want. It turns out that things that are perfectly smooth and perfectly straight don't feel right to human beings. So it's a little bit of a cop-out to say, I can't tell you. Because, of course, if I could tell you, then I could teach a computer to do it. But what I do believe is that many of us truly do know it when we see it. So my linchpin mug, the one that I drink from every day, was handmade by Lori Coop. And Lori added wabi-sabi. I don't know if she did it on purpose or if it was merely a byproduct of being a passionate potter. All I know is that mug works better for me than a regular mug, than a machine-made mug, than a mug that came out of a Six Sigma perfect mold. And that's why Lori Coop is an artist, because she understood the difference between one and the other. Hey, Seth, it's Stephen. What's your perspective on contrived wabi-sabi? New furniture with a distressed patina, factory-ripped jeans, mass-production faking wabi-sabi and not always skillfully? What are your thoughts? This question opens a whole can of worms, because of course we're going to see more and more fake wabi-sabi in the world. Chaz Palminteri, the actor and writer, has in his mansion in Bedford, I know from the paper, not because I've been there, a Jackson Pollock. A Jackson Pollock hanging between the first and the second floor along the stairs. And if you or I looked at it, we would say, wow, you have a Jackson Pollock. But of course, it's not a real Jackson Pollock. It's a fake. It's a fake that was created for a movie about Pollock's life. So, is it real or is it fake? If we look at it and we think it's real, it's real enough. But if he looks at it and knows it's a fake, well, then it's clearly a fake. And so I'd like to argue that as we get closer and closer to being able to simulate the work of by hand, to simulate the work of humanity, what's going to matter for a long time to come is do we have a story about it? Do we know its origin? Did something have to happen for this to be created? Was there a struggle along the way? Because wabi-sabi is always in the eye of the beholder. But now, now that we can simulate it, even more than that, it's in the eye of the story holder, the storyteller, the person who knows what was involved. Thanks for listening. And as always, we would love to have your questions. We'll answer them if we can. Just visit akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned 
It's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.